Thanks for downloading the C-Suite podcast. I'm Russell Goldsmith and for show number six, I'm joined here in the studios by Stuart Thompson, European Director of Tint. Um, and Stuart's here to discuss the subject of social hubs. And we also have the immediate past president of the CIPR, Stephen Waddington, as later in the show I'm hoping to uh, find out exactly what a chief engagement officer does, which is the role that Wads has uh, recently been promoted to at Ketchum, as well as quizzing him on some of the uh, findings from the CIPR State of the Profession survey that's just been published this week, actually. Uh, So, Stuart, perhaps you can start off uh, today's interview by giving us um, a quick intro into Tint and also how you've come to be a partner of the CIPR. Thank you very much, Russell. Um, Tints is a technology platform that allows organisations to display social feeds and uh, port them to any digital device anywhere in the world. So we work with lots and lots of different global brands and we work work with lots of agencies as well. We came to work with the CIPR because um, I had a relationship with some of the CIPR guys in a a previous role and um, we very much uh, see the CIPR as kind of a rubber stamp when it comes to our engagement through Europe. The CIPR for us, um, the the, the PR industry has gone through a lot of change, along with any marketing, um, it's gone through a lot of change in the last few years. And the CIPR has really led the way when it comes to social, um, there's there's books like Share This and so on. Um, And I know that um, Stephen's work as as president of CIPR has really pushed forward digital innovation and that side of things. So um, with our partnership with the CIPR, we're able to innovate and be able to display different social feeds into different areas. So an example would be when we launched with the CIPR, we probably created the first user-generated content press release. So so yeah, there's lots of things like that. We're still pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Uh, And would you say you're quite unique in in the way your platform works? Um, I don't think we're completely unique. I think social display is something that happens. But when it comes to size and, and, and being a self-serve platform, I think we serve ourselves as, as being a kind of leader in our own marketplace. At the same time, because we're self-serve, we look at strategy first. Um, so it's great displaying a social feed, but why are you doing that? What yeah. do you want to achieve? So we're kind of very consultative in the way okay. we, we work with brands. Excellent. Well, we'll come on to some more sort of examples of, of how some of the brands have, have used the platform. Um, so what's, um, I want to bring you into the uh, the chat at this point because as past president can you explain what the CIPR looks for in its partners? Yeah it's, it's simply three things um, Russell it's um, an organisation that supports the CIPR's vision and values in its shift to professionalism and, and modernity it's a complementary service that's going to have benefit to to members in, in their work uh, and and finally something that adds tangible value um, either from a technical point of view such as Tint or the service that USP content providers that are helping us record the podcast today or it's a member service like Hiscott Insurance. Okay. Stuart, looking at your client list via your your website, it's quite a high uh, or or a large list of high profile (laughs) brands already using Tint. Maybe you can pick an, an example and explain how they're using the platform to take as you mentioned it's all about user generated content so how they can take that content from their brand advocates and that could be across any number of social platforms and and channels of course and and how they then amplify those messages further yeah we we, we, will i do think there's a vertical market that we don't really work in at the moment but one of the case studies that we really love is actually for the climate march in new york Um, The Climate March in New York was not only the largest climate march, it's actually the largest digital climate march as well. So um, from a results point of view, they managed to reach a billion impressions. They used tints within their website, which obviously was also responsive for for mobile users. And that allowed them to aggregate different social channels around the project, around the hashtag, be able to push that into their digital assets. And then people, it had two things. One, it amplified engagement, but at the same time, um, it also... um, 
it worked from a logistical point of view. So people were able to see where they needed to meet at Battery Park and then um, be able to share and be able to, to curate as they go along. As well as that, they had um, kind of a war room set up. So they kind of walked, worked 24-7 to, to reach that engagement. But one of the key things with that project was was be able to, to recognise and be able to reach out to influencers. So an example there would be um, the top influencer was Barack Obama. Underneath him was DiCaprio. Underneath him was Russell Brand. Um, and what that did, of course, as you can imagine, was really, really push that story forward. And as well as that, we're able to push out um, and collect different analytics around outspoken people. And these are people that are really, really um, engaging in the project. And for us, it was a really excellent charity project. But obviously, from a from an impression point of view, something that kind of broke quite a few uh, uh, different records when it comes to charity engagement. Do you, do and that's, know, a sim- that's a that's a, that's a, that's a common theme actually. Um, right. the, the ways that different organisations use Tint to amplify. Okay, I was going to say that's the third time I've heard war room set up. <laughs> In, in the past, probably sort of 24 hours. Yeah. Have they got something like that at Ketchum for your campaign? <laughs> so War Room's a word that's been used to describe, because it neatly and effectively describes people working in an agile way around a single table um, to deliver a campaign for, for a client, and it's bringing all the disciplines together to work integrated. Yeah. So, no, we call them newsrooms, but the same applies. <laughs> Listen, on, on, in terms of uh, the way you were describing that campaign, do you think your technology, or technologies like yours, I should say, is giving ownership back to the brands? Um, because, for example, will we see everyone being driven back to the website rather than, say, the, its Facebook page? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, one of the issues that, that, that large organi- brands have, or in fact, any organisation have, is that their social communities are on you know, their Facebook community is, is on Facebook. Their Instagram community is on Instagram. The, the idea around collecting that and pushing that into different digital assets they have is very, very important for brands. And we make that very, very easy. So, yeah, I suppose when it comes to um, the amount of user-generated content that's created, it regularly breaks records. So as a communication channel or, uh, or a way of reaching out, it's, it's, it's clearly the number one global way of being able to reach people mm. and actually interact with them at the same time. Excellent. Um you must have looked at uh, hundreds of social platforms and apps. Was I mean, how do you assess them before presenting them to your clients at Ketchum, for example? Is there a pressure to be at the cutting edge? You know, we've, we've talked before about, you know, oh, everyone must try out the shiny new toys. But is, is, there, is there some clients that think, yeah, that's a great idea or others that just want to see that immediate ROI? So the well, the first thing to say is whenever a new market, a new application comes along, a new platform, a new tool, uh, the public relations business seems to be polarised by among those people that jump on it and want to break it, discover how you can use it as a means to engage with with publics, and those that say it's going to die, uh, it's not relevant, it's you know, and, and just instantly dismiss it. And we've seen you see that with every wave of technology, and frankly, that's disappointing. Inevitably, there are clients that and brands that are innovators and want to jump on uh, new stuff. They tend to be the FMCG brands. They tend to be the the high street organisations. Actually, often their um, travel businesses uh, and the travel industry as well. And then there's the very traditional brands and, and organisations that, um, you know, are you know, I think blogging is quite a bold uh, social <laughs> form of media. So, you know, the, you've got to suit your media to, to, to the organisation and how it wants to engage with its public. But I think it's beholden to anyone in the public relations business to jump on any new tool and try it out and, and, and explore it. It's okay. part of continuous learning. Well, Stuart, in terms of ROI, how do you actually measure that in terms of using a platform like yours or on a wider subject? Can you see brands actually generating revenue from social hubs in particular? 
one of the kind of um, sort of black boxes, I suppose, when it comes to social is how you make money from it. And for us, it's, it's really about the, the community and the engagement side of it. You know, you've got the largest community within within your brand and the organization and it happens to be on social and constantly asking them to buy your services isn't really gonna gonna work that well actually using that community in an effective and strategic way of course is uh you can overlay as an example a social post with a call to action and that can be hey come and buy our makeup it can, it can be anything around come sign up what you what's your view on this so there are ways to monetize uh, social media channels but that needs to be tactical and you need to be careful. So, you know, I, th- I think I think a lot of organisations are still tapping the water with that. Um, from an ROI point of view, if you think around accessing your influencers, finding out your outspoken people are, they are brand advocates of yours. They are marketing for you. That side of things, it's kind of a no brainer. They are producing work. Um, they're producing you to generate content that you can't even buy. You can't even ask them. You know, they're doing stuff that's outside of your kind of um, tools that you have and they're doing that for you. So it's a really interesting space when it comes to um, using your community and, and engaging with your community in different ways. And for us, it's that strategic part you know you you want to create uh, user generated content but why do you want to do that what are you trying to achieve have you thought about this have you thought about that one way of using our, 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 our platform is completely different from how another brand will use it so it's really that that tactical side of things that really you know that consultative way of talking with brands that okay. we do first well maybe, maybe you can finish off this section of, of the uh, of the podcast just by giving us a couple of tips that you think yeah, maybe global brands in particular can can benefit from when trying to manage their social presence across you know multi regions. Which you know, with something like your technology, where it's calling in content from so many different places, that that must be quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we, we that we say um, when we meet with a brand, we obviously we pull through all their different user generated content, and then um, you know they're always wowed about how much actual content there is out there because people are talking about their brand whether they like it or not. So with our platform like ours, they're then able to then curate that and then put, and then and then publish that into different digital assets. So I think really it, it's it's around that. It's around knowing where the, your community is, using that community to, to, to your best, and that isn't always asking them to buy, and then and then publishing that into different areas regionally. Because we can geofence content to different areas, we're able to to create a global project almost instantly. And and that for for a brand is something that's that they've not been able to do in the past, and and that they can do very easily now. But you know, whenever whenever we talk with brands and and, and the user cases that we have, people are, people are doing it in different ways all the time. So we're still touching, really scraping the surface as to what's possible when it comes to social display. Excellent. And without this sounding like an ad, where can they go for more information before we move on to the next it, part of the show? Yeah, we're at tintup.com. We're at, we're at, at Tint. Excellent. Nice one. Um, thanks, Stuart. Uh, now, before we um, quiz uh, Stephen Waddington about life after being the president of the CIPR, um, yesterday I had the pleasure of attending the CIPR social media panel's first hack day, um, which was on the topic of paid for social media. And I grabbed a quick soundbite from two of my panel colleagues to discuss some of the output from the tweet chat, which we ran during the afternoon. So we're uh, three hours into the CIPR social media panel's first hack day, and the topic of the day is paid for social media. Um, We've just finished an hour-long Twitter chat, which raised quite a few questions and um, topics on the subject, and I'm joined by the panel's co-chair and MD of the crowd and I, Gemma Griffiths, along with Joanna Halton, who is the social media strategist at McCann in Manchester, to talk about some of the outcomes. Now, first question to both of you um, is, what's been the main issue raised in the tweet chat this afternoon? 
Hi, yeah, sorry, it's a joke. Um, one, one of the key things that was uh, raised today was sort of a lot of PRs asking why it's relevant to them um, and why they need to think paid for content. I think typically when people think about PR, they think about earned um, and earned opportunities. But, you know, there's always been an element of paid, even if it's been small in PR. Um, but what we're seeing now is with the um, advent of changes in social media, so Facebook dropping their organic reach to zero, um, the fact that on Twitter you only reach about 3% of your followers organically we're really needing to look at paid for opportunities in order to maximize the the impact of earned content that we produce and in media that we produce well that well that perfectly leads on to my ne- next question Gemma maybe you can answer this in terms of do you think it therefore makes sense given that you know you talk about the poor reach in terms of organic posts and what we're talking about here is sort of promoting content creation that surely makes sense that it sits within the PR remit for sure. So I think, like um, Joe was saying, uh, what, a lot of what we've been talking about today looks at the storytelling side of things and how you amplify your message or your your content to reach your intended target audience. So, uh, gone are the days where you used to have free reach and free engagement. Uh, now you're creating all this beautiful content, and you need to put some paid for budget behind it to be able to actually reach um, its intended target audience. So, I think for me, that was the main takeaway today. Uh, was that we're actually talking about amplification and boosting content and to reach its target audience because it's not as uh, effective just to use organic reach anymore. Joe, have you learned anything new yourself this afternoon? Yeah, so... um What's actually really surprised me is from doing the Twitter chat um, is how many people are still hesitant within PR to consider paid. So, I mean, paid has always played a role in PR, albeit a bit smaller, but certainly now with the changes in social media, the changes in Facebook's algorithm, um, it's something that now needs to be considered. Um, And I guess it shouldn't have come as a surprise because in the state of the profession survey that came out from the CIPR, it actually revealed that only 20% of people um, who are PR professionals consider digital and technical skills a key competency, which um, I found slightly unbelievable. But um, yeah, that's, that's the thing that I learned today. And what about yourself, Gemma? Yeah, I think for me, we as an agency uh, look at paid for social to help boost organic content. So any media coverage that we get or opinion pieces that we do, we put a bit of spend behind it um, to reach its intended uh, target audience. Uh, Traditionally, we've stayed away from things like display advertising and that kind of paid for area. Uh, But what what was interesting about today's conversation is people were sharing uh, models about how they integrate the two and giving a bit of insight into how you can do the display ads and set up that that side of things and the the network. So I found that really interesting and we'll take that away and uh, build that out within our agency. Excellent. And just to finish off, I know you've been putting together a uh, Storify um, of the sort of summarising the tweet chat is there a link that or or somewhere that our listeners can go and find um, all the information if they miss the actual chat Definitely. So I'd encourage everyone to go to um, at CIPRSM where we share all of our content and links to our content. So the Storify will be up on there later today. Thanks again there to Gemma Griffiths and Joanna Houghton from the CIPR social media panel. You're listening to the C-Suite podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. So, Wads, you've been at Ketchum for a couple of years now. Um, How did you land this new role? 
Um, so go back a bit. 2012, um, I exited my own agency speed with um, Steve Earle. Steve went on to found um, Zeno, compete brand for uh, Edelman, and um, I joined Ketchum and, and that, that did that by seeking. I hadn't worked ever worked internationally. It was a clear area where I needed to develop my own skills, and I basically connected with David Gallagher, the CEO, European CEO on Twitter and, you know, over the course of six months landed a role there. That role developed over two years. Um, you clearly know if you follow T-Bone Gallagher on, on Twitter, he's quite a public relations moderniser. That role developed in, in, in Europe um, over the last two years and um, started this year. We've basically d- developed it slightly uh, and, and taken it writ large internationally. Okay, now I'm intrigued to know what exactly is a chief engagement officer. And the reason I ask is when I searched the term on Google, the second link was to an article on uh, instituteforpr.org, which comments on an interview that Richard Edelman gave with uh, McKinsey in April last year, where he used the term to, to describe the CEO's new role. So you just mentioned David Gallagher. I, <laughs> I guess my question is whether or not David actually knows um, if you're after his job of uh, CEO of Ketchum Europe. Um, so, so to Edelman's point, Edelman in the Trust Barometer identified a couple of years ago that we needed to, organisations needed to create this role of Chief Engagement Officer and said actually it should be the, the CEO's role. We've got a slightly different view uh, at Ketchum. Uh, David Gallagher clearly hires people that are smarter than him. <laughs> and, uh, and, Do and, I need to edit that out? <laughs> He would say that himself, and so has has helped me develop develop that role. And um, we've gone from this European perspective um, to to do it internationally. And we can come on and talk about what it, what it actually means. Okay. Now, in in the press release that Ketchum put out um, to announce your promotion, <laughs> you stated, and I quote: "I'm not trying to be like Paxman here." But <laughs> you, you stated, and I quote: "My role will be to operate, sorry, operationalize our best practices on a global scale." Now, come on, operationalize. Is that even a word? Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you mean in English? So, so okay. So you've got to realise that that Ketchum is uh, owned by Omnicom, it's a public company. Uh, there are certain rules when we we put out formal statements to um, to the stock exchange, and you wouldn't be allowed to put "get shit done" in a press release. <laughs> but um, operationalize effectively means to get shit done to to, to industrialize processes, products, services for what for for clients writ large at scale around the world. Brilliant. Do you, do you think uh, other agencies? are going to be sort of creating this role to fill? So the the brief is to to make social and digital um, normal across the agency, as normal as the traditional publicity, media relations is a, a, across the business. We've, we've seen that done over the last five years by agencies hiring um, smart digital talent, putting typically putting a senior person in a role, and that person sledgehammering the way around the agency trying to uh, affect change. And that's got us so far, but it's also created a bubble of talent. Um, and, and I think we're shifting to to a stage where this has got to be completely normal now and and so yes you know is there evidence well Edelman's using the language we're clearly using the language in other agencies and and actually uh, organizations are starting to too as well now while we've got you on the show I just wanted to finish off uh, the interview by reflecting back on the 12 months you spent as president of the CIPR also what shape you feel you've left the organization in for 2015 and beyond now the timing wise this is obviously quite appropriate as we've just seen the results of the CIPR State of the Profession survey and you blogged about that this week saying um, and I quote that the findings were quite damning a damning read for the PR profession with very little to celebrate do you want to expand on yeah, that? Yeah so the CIPR like the public relations industry is an organisation in change um, I was 
my, the timing of my appointment last year was fortunate in that it coincided with uh, Alistair McCaffrey coming in as the chief executive as well. So we had a clean sheet uh, and we did a lot of work. And the primary thing we did was focus the organisation around its original vision and purpose and aligned it with that very clearly. Now, that is to promote professionalism in public relations for practitioners, but also in the public interest. And in doing that, that gives you a very sync single-minded focus for what you do and, as importantly, what you don't do. So, you know, much of last year was focused on aligning to to that vision. So we changed the governance, we changed the organisational structure, uh, and we started to drive forward with better um, member engagement. That continues to be a work in progress. Were you surprised by the findings, though? Uh, so the findings of the state of the PR profession, you know, one of the frustrations I have constantly um, is how slow our business moves. The pace of technology, the pace of change is incredibly fast, but actually changes in society and culture are really slow. Behavioural changes especially slow. In the public relations industry, they seem for some reason to be incredibly slow. So yeah, I was pissed off when I read those review, read, read, the, re, the, read the results because, you know, you, you, we spent 12 months working really, really hard to modernise what we do and on the face of it made a lot of progress but then when you actually go and look at the data and the data in the state of the PR prohibition it's, you know, we've turned the dial fractionally. Mm. There, there is a tendency though and I can speak as an expert on this, but which you know that for people just to sit and moan when they get a chance to do a survey, do you not? Is, is it a fair reflection on some uh, of those? You know? uh, so I think I think what's happening is that the the business is polarizing and it's polarizing around two camps. It's traditionalists who are quite clearly from the state of the PR profession don't recognise the need for professionalism in the way that we define it, um, don't recognise the need for, for training. I mean, one of the horrendous stats that came out of it was that the majority of people see professionalism as, as experience. And, you know, it's nonsense. With an industry that's moving so quickly, mm. a media that's changing so quickly, how can be experience be a metric of, of success? It just can't. It's important, no doubt, and, and wise counsel is important, but, you know, there's so many other things as well. So, you know, I, I, it's effectively, a, I think, a work in progress. I think it is a real picture. I think the business is polarising between traditionalists and clearly people at the forefront of the business, like the CRPL panel, like us, I hope, sat around this table mm -hmm. here talking about the future uh, and actually talking about now and the engagement that we're delivering through these platforms such as Tint for, for, for our clients. And, and you know, I, I, I think actually it's going to be a generational issue that takes probably to the end of my career to play through, and that's quite fortunate. Well, <laughs> well keeping focus on, on what we're talking about in terms of social media, I mean, in, in your blog you uh, post, you talked about 10 findings from the report that should act as a wake-up call for any practitioner wanting to avoid what you called uh, becoming irrelevant. And obviously we could be here discussing all, you know, all afternoon discussing all 10. I wanted to focus on number six in your, in your list, which was, which was uh, the lack of digital and social skills. And I assume you mean social media skills. Yeah, okay, yes. Although, <laughs> although some people have a lack of social skills as well. <laughs> yeah, lack of social skills in our business. It's really back to what, the, what I'm doing at, at, at Ketchum and recognising the need that there is this massive shift from publicity to... Uh, influencer relations, then branded forms of media, as, as Stuart has talked around, and, and community uh, as a means of engagement. And recognising that in doing that, we have a massive opportunity to embrace. And we can either embrace that, as you know, I'm doing in my role as Ketchum and addressing it through organisational structures, through developing communities of expertise and normalising it on the same footing as, as media relations, if you like, developing products and services and, 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 and frameworks and doing, you know, educational activities such, such as this. Or you can say, no, I'm going to stick with what I'm 
did traditionally. <laughs> you know, I know which camp I'm in. Yeah, Stuart, are you finding a willingness to, to um, you know, when you're going out and seeing potential clients and agencies, are you seeing a willingness to learn and and sort of embrace technology like like yours? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone wants to sort of fight against, you know, fight against competitors and that side of things. I, I think, I think from the kind of report side of it. I think the PR industry sometimes gives itself a hard time. I, th- I actually think um, it's in, still in a very, very exciting space. Um, when we engage with with organisations, we work with PR agencies, we work with normal agencies, we work direct, direct, directly with, with brands, and we work with government organisations as well. That um, you know, the fact that they, they they find an easy way to engage with la- large communities, we, we're always shocked. They're always shocked to, to realise how much content they've actually got around their hashtag around their company. Um, sometimes we engage. Um, or companies engage with us, they, have, they don't really have that many social profiles for, for themselves, but people are talking about them anyway. So, uh, you know, it's, it's always an interesting piece when they see the amount of content that's happening. And from a PR point of view, with the way that you can curate that and publish that out, um, you know, it's become a really key part. And I, th- I think there are lots of tools to do that. Um, and that's that strategic side of PR, that uh, tactical part of PR. I think there's that. I, I believe that the public relations industry is actually in a really exciting place. But there's the things around gender and stuff like that, um, gender equality in the report that I think most industries have got an issue with. Mm. One of the things we talked about earlier, which was quite interesting at Tints, is we're very, very, very transparent um, to the point where we kind of know what each other's paid and we kind of break a lot of rules in that way. We make a lot of group decisions. Um, so I think from an organisational change point of view, I think I think it's really important to not always be disruptive, but try and be innovative. Yeah. OK, well, just finishing on on the, that part of you know, the report and ending on... On a, on a positive, um, do you, you know, going back to you, was do you feel that a lot of the issues you highlighted in your post are being addressed? Uh, yeah, so they're certainly being addressed because they're part of the agenda that the CIPR continues to pursue, and agencies like Ketchum are pursuing, and clearly Stuart Tint is is addressing. And so that that's that's fantastic. I mean, you know, you cannot bring about change without measuring staff and. Um, you know, benchmarking on on an annual basis. So that I think this is part of the exercise, um, but it's beholden on individual practitioners to to be intellectually curious, to look at new platforms, to explore new technologies, uh, and you know, to, to picking up on some of the stuff that that. Uh, Stuart mentioned the the transparency issue. You know, just go and look on Glassdoor. Go and look on. Yeah. Uh, you know, go and do basic curating searches using a platform such as Tint, if mm-hmm. you like. Um, and you know, you will find conversations going on on whatever platform you want about your brand, organisation, or market. And you know, yes, it's an incredibly exciting time for public relations. But my God, you know, we as practitioners have got to embrace it. So, in your twelve months as president, you made some progress. <laughs> we focus the organisation in the right way and, and uh, uh, very single-mindedly on a vision and purpose and, and it's in the right direction and that work continues. You know, personally, I would have liked to have pushed it, uh, made more progress, but, you know, actually, um, you know, it, 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 it's set up, it's going in the right direction and, um, you know, there's some great people coming on behind me to continue that work. Excellent. Uh, and good way to finish off uh, show six as well. I want to thank again uh, Stuart Thompson from Tint and Ketchum, Stephen Wannington for joining me here at USP uh, Content Studios. Thanks for listening and goodbye.